Let's hear from God's word now from John chapter 1, verses 19 through 28. And this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Then why are you baptizing, if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. This is God's word for us. Amen. Seated. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open or your worship folder open, the passage that we've uh, just had read out. That's what we're going to be studying together this morning. How many of you saw the uh, big fight last night, paid pay-per-view, the Floyd Mayweather-Kona-McGregor uh, fight? I, I confess I did not pay for that, but I um, heard the, uh, the radio a little bit, and it sounded like it was a pretty interesting occasion, though perhaps the outcome was predictable uh, in the end. Um, if you were a betting person, perhaps you would have put it on Floyd Mayweather, not that any of you are betting people, I'm sure. It reminded me of the story of the Irish boxer, a champion boxer from Ireland, uh, came, became a Christian, was converted, and uh, was then taken around different churches and big meetings in Ireland to give his testimony of his uh, conversion. After one such uh, meeting, uh, when uh, the crowd was still there, suddenly a man came to the front of the, uh, of the meeting and uh, confronted the Irish boxer, trying to figure out whether this man had really changed or not. And his way of figuring that out was to hit him straight in the mouth. He wanted to see whether he could get a rise out of the, uh, the champion uh, Irish boxer. Well, with all eyes now uh, focused like laser beam on this uh, event at the front of the, the large meeting, this uh, former Irish champion boxer who'd become a Christian very slowly and deliberately turned the other cheek. Whereupon his... Um, uh, his, uh, the guy who confronted him uh, immediately hit him again straight in the face. There was a pause. The Irish champion boxer announced loudly, Our Lord has given us no other instruction. There are a lot of battles going on in our culture today. I'm sure you are aware of this. We live in a time of culture war. And at the heart of many of those battles is 
identity. Who are you? To which tribe do you belong? What is your racial background? What is your social economic group? We have this constant identity politics in our culture. And at the back of that is um, a self-esteem movement that really began in the 1970s that fueled a sense that many of us still wrestle with, whereby we have been told over and over again that we're special and that we will amount to something significant. And then we become disappointed when perhaps life does not turn out as we were told that it would, that you can do whatever you want if you just put in enough effort. Fascinating survey was done in 1999 of a group of teenagers regarding what their expectations would be as to what they would earn by the time they got to 30. And the survey showed that the uh, expectation was that uh, most teenagers at the time thought that they would earn, roughly speaking, at least $75,000 a year. The interesting thing was that at the time, the average earning of 30-year-olds was about $27,000. So we live with this huge disparity. The coach who says, you're just great, you're going to be a brilliant basketball player, and then our knee is shot and we don't play basketball again. The teacher who's told us over and again how special we are and how important we are. And then we go into the working world and we find they don't think we're so great after all. And we gather around different identity groups that can shore up our sense of self-esteem, our sense of who we are, what we're for, make us feel special. And these different identity groups are often these days at war, at least a war of words, with each other. Now, what is fascinating about this passage, what is striking about John the Baptist, is that it was not about him. Over and over again in these few verses, John the Baptist points people away from him to someone else. In this passage, there are two sets of questions. First, who are you? From verses 19 to 23. Second, why are you baptizing? Verses 24 to 28. The first question is, of course, an identity question. Who are you? The second question is a purpose question. Why are you doing what you do? Everyone has to answer who they are and why they do what they do. Everyone has to find their identity and know their true purpose. And John here is modeling for us and is presented by the author of the gospel, John, for us to model for us an identity and a purpose that is not about him but is centered on Christ. And in John's overall scheme throughout the gospel to present to us the means to find life through Jesus as revealed in this word, this Bible, that he, this gospel that he was inspired to write, in this overall intention to offer to us this life to the full through 
through Jesus that we discover through his gospel, John the Baptist is now introduced with the most paradoxical set of answers to the question about identity and purpose. And yet at the heart of them is the way to discover life to the full. So first, who are you? Verses 19 to 23. As you look down there, I wonder whether you notice there's a great irony in this first paragraph that underlines the identity question. So we have uh, from Jerusalem, that is the center of religious power at the time, they had sent priests and Levites, verse 19, who had come from the Pharisees, verse 24. So in other words, some committee or board or group of religious leaders had sent to John a visitation or inspection of official clerics to find out who on earth he thought he was. And I say there's a deep irony here because if you look back to verse 6, John himself has been sent by God. So there you have the official authority from Jerusalem sending a visitation to John to figure out who on earth he thinks he is, and John himself has been sent by God. The human religious power is sending representatives to inspect the work of a man who was sent by no other than God himself. You see, my friends, central at the heart of a Christian's identity is that he or she belongs to God. What freedom there is in this. What peace, what joy, what life. How it sets us free from being constantly the beck and call of uh, the latest opinion of our peer or our friend or our group or whatever it is. Not that we don't have a community around us that can give us advice, we need that. Not that we don't have appropriate authority structure around us, we need that. But that fundamentally and foundationally, we have a different origin. As John has already written, the author of the gospel, we are born of God. We belong to God. I'm told that uh, if you are a very good scuba diver, you can go down so deep into the ocean that right down there, there's no, there's no light. You can't see anything. And if you're right down there in the depths of the ocean and you don't have uh, the appropriate uh, light, you, you just cannot see anything. So what happens if for some reason or other your lights fail and you're stuck there in the depth of the ocean? You, it, you cannot, how do you even know which way is up and which way is down? I'm told that scuba divers have a, uh, trained a certain technique to deal with this moment if they become this expert. And the way they figure that up is they find the top of their head and they put their hand up and the bubbles show them which way is up. Similarly, as a Christian, when you're immersed in, who am I? 
Am I defined by my gender? Am I defined by my race? Am I defined by what someone else said about me? Am I defined by my culture or my class or how much money I make or any of these things that have in their own way some legitimate association with ourselves but are not at the root of who we are as a Christian? At that moment, we can, as it were, remember that we belong to God. We can, as it were, put our hand up to feel the bubbles. John has that security. And so when he is asked the question, who are you? He says, verse 20, well, he's not the Christ. Again, verse 21, he is not Elijah. Once more, verse 21, he says, no, he is not the prophet. So John the Baptist, dressed like a prophet, preaching in the wilderness, baptizing people to symbolize a new exodus of spiritual redemption. We'll think about baptism in a moment. John, a larger-than-life figure, like an Old Testament prophet, reborn, walking among them, natural enough to say, could he be the Christ? Could he be the prophet? But John denies all this. It's not about him. And so then, who is he? Well, verse 23, he quotes from the great Old Testament prophet Isaiah, I am, this is my identity, it's who I am. I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. In other words, John is saying that uh, Isaiah, in this great summary um, text for the message of the whole of the Scriptures in the Old Testament, John the Baptist is saying, that's all I am. I am simply preaching the message of the Bible in in. And that's it. I'm just a voice of the Scriptures. And Jesus, of course, described John the Baptist as the greatest who had ever been born among people because at that moment, John the Baptist, preaching the message of the Old Testament Scriptures, actually saw Jesus. Central then to a Christian's identity is not only that he or she belongs to God, but that he or she communicates Jesus with everything that they are. So our identity is not that we're all the same, like some cookie-cutter copy of what a good Christian should be. It is not that we have to hide our mistakes or uh, the parts of ourselves that are less than idyllic. Yes, our gifts speak of Jesus and communicate Jesus, but also even our wilderness, even our desert, even our brokenness, even, dare I say it, our sins. Of course, sin can be a great, is a great shame and a great um, thing to avoid with all the power that God gives you. Yet at the same time, because we are all sinners and we all sin, he says he has no sin, deceives himself, and the truth is not in him. We are all sinners because of that. The fact is, God still loves us, and it proclaims the beauty of Christ and who he is, that he puts up with a bunch of people like you and me. even in our brokenness. And when we fail to confess that, you know, we're human, 
we actually rob Jesus of the very pinnacle of his glory, namely at the cross. He died for sinners. One of the um, great Reformation preachers, Hugh Latimer, was um, known for um, using illustrations and anecdotes like a lot of the great old preachers. And one of the illustrations he used of this uh, matter that I'm just preaching about here, that God even uses our, our brokenness to communicate Jesus, was a story like this. There was a man and his wife, and the man was confessing his sins to his wife. And the man uh, said to his wife, he said this, you know, uh, wife, um, perhaps you shouldn't call your wife wife, but there we go. You know, wife, um, I've just got to confess to you that I, I find myself often angry without cause. And so his wife thought about this for a moment, and being a wise woman, she looked at him with a twinkle in her eye and said, don't worry, darling, I'll give you enough cause soon enough. We're human. We're broken. God loves us in Christ. Not because of our brokenness, not because He doesn't want to transform us into tokens of His glory and be saints, but because He is love, and that is the kind of person He is, and so even our brokenness communicates Jesus. Who are you? Your identity is one who belongs to God and communicates Jesus. Second, why are you? Verses 24 to 28. They asked Him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? In other words, it's not about you, John, then why are you baptizing? We don't know where uh, for sure the practice of baptism came from. Scholars have different views, but we don't know for certain. That the fact of baptism needs no explanation, but why John is baptizing does. Why are you baptizing? Not what on earth is this thing called baptism? That suggests that John was refitting an already existing practice. And we actually know from archaeology that there have been baths discovered which were for ritual washings. And um, centuries before, Naaman the Syrian bathed in the water of the Jordan on the instruction of the prophet Elisha to be healed. And of course, long before that, Israel as a whole country had come through the waters of baptism when they went through the Red Sea safely and were rescued from the Egyptian army. So why is John baptizing? What it is saying that a great new stage of God's redemption plan is beginning. A new spiritual exodus is about to happen to God's people. Get ready. And so John says, Verse 28, I baptize with water, but what you've really got to be ready for is what it's pointing to. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. And we'll look next week when uh, John the Baptist points out the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Central then to a Christian's purpose is that we exist to point people to Jesus. What a privilege, what a joy. No longer is work merely about earning money. No longer is raising children merely about changing diapers. No longer is studying merely about getting good grades. 
all of life is now caught up in this purpose. We exist to promote, serve, and rejoice in Jesus Himself. We are a part of the greatest movement in the world, the expansion of the kingdom of God. Is that your identity? Is that your purpose? There are many competing identities in the world today. For some people, sports is their fundamental identity. If sports are your fundamental identity, then your purpose will be athletic achievement. What will be the effect of that? The effect of that, well, as I suppose we all know, 0.001% of people involved in sports actually make it to the Olympics. And for the rest of us, like me, we'll wish that perhaps we played rugby slightly less when we were younger. And the result? If our identity is sports and our purpose is athletic achievement, well, there's a game on Sunday at Skip Church. We become identified by sports rather than by Jesus. We become identified by whether you got the basket in the whatever it's called thing, you know, basketball, that thing. For many people, their identity is their body, body image. It's for um, women, this struggle, often also these days for men. Men are meant to have, you know, and, you know, and I can see you, and not many of you do. Well, not, I, you know what I mean. We'll recall the 9.30 after that service. I was amused to discover that in Australia, there's actually a little movement, a competition for who is the Australian man with the best dad bod. If your identity is your body image, what will you purpose? Well, then you will spend all your time at the gym you will work out incessantly. You'll go to the best spa. I don't know, what is it, cola spa? Um, I, I've never been, I promise you. What will be the effect of that? Insecurity. You will never look like those Hollywood stars. They spend their whole life doing that. You'll be insecure. Am I good enough? Am I really loved enough? Do I look right? Money is a huge identity thing for many people. If, you, if money is your identity, your purpose will be wealth accumulation. And what will be the effect of that? The effect of that will be, well, there's always someone with more. There's always Bill Gates. And the result? Well, we don't need to read what Jesus said very much in the Bible to come across the rich man and Lazarus and the danger of making money your identity. 
Now, having mentioned that, we need to balance it. It is the love of money, not money itself. Money is a tool. Ever since the Wall Street crash of 2008, a Marxist ideology of total egalitarianism has entered the West. One only need read George Orwell's Animal Farm to know where that is headed. As long as some people work harder than others, some are born with more ability than others, some are given more circumstantial opportunity than others, some save when others spend, some invest shrewdly when others invest foolishly, as long as all those things are true, some will be richer than others. If, say, you could uh, make a complete level, everything totally equal, like uh, the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia attempted, or the French Revolution, you take it back to year zero, what would be the result? The result would be that within a few years, you would have exactly the same disparity, for as long as humanity is this side of glory, such differences will continue to exist. And you'll have a lot of bloodshed along the way, by the way. No, the solution is not communism. It is generosity. The wealthy must give until it hurts, or at least until they are giving up some legitimate pleasure. As Jesus says, to he who much is given, much is required. And when the wealthy give in that, uh, in that way, they will be freed from the trap of money and find life and life to the full. What well, is easy for those of us in ministry to talk about that. For in our circles, Christian ministry, we're probably not primarily thinking about money as the driving motivational identity, but Christian ministry itself can be a fundamental identity. And if Christian ministry is our fundamental identity, then what is the purpose? The purpose will be fame, Christian fame, we'll want to be the next Chuck Swindoll or the next Martin Lloyd-Jones, whoever your hero is. And of course, the effect could be that as it were in the temple, we lose sight of God. And if we lose God in the temple, where are we going to find Him? I've been reading a lot of these books that have come out recently about burnout in Christian ministry. And as I've been looking at them, I've been asking myself this question. Are people in the profession of Christian ministry actually working harder now than they did 50 years ago? And I think the answer is no. Instead, we have drunk too deeply as this idea of celebrity. And when we're not in that camp, whatever that camp may be of the celebrity, we burn the midnight oil until we burn out. Children can be an identity. If uh, your children are your identity, then having successful children will be your purpose. Or what will be the effect? The effect will be whenever a child messes up, you'll feel so embarrassed that you'll feel like shouting and screaming because your identity is that child. 
And even if all your children are wonderfully perfect and look beautiful and get all the right grades and go to all the right schools and get the right jobs, you know what? They're going to leave. And then who are you? Career can be a huge identity. If career is your identity, being the top dog, having the C-suite or the best C-suite in town is uh, the purpose, the goal. That's all very well, but when that merry-go-round stops, when all that stops and you leave the office, who are you? Instead of Jesus is your identity, your purpose is to make Jesus known, and the effect is life to the full. A man or woman with this identity is no longer just a man or woman. They are a John the Baptist. Their wilderness even embodies a voice declaring Christ. They strip down from the layers of success. They take off the identity of big man about campus. They, they remove the identity of most beautiful person in the city. They askew the identity of Mr. Funny ever ready with a one-liner. They are, as it were, content with horsehair and locusts and honey. You know, if you stand on the other side of a brick wall, you cannot see the sunlight. Too many of us, I think, are... A, a bit like that. We're a brick wall. We're like the moon going across the sun, an eclipse that blocks out the light. But to have this identity is to be a window, plain and clear and clean and pure as possible, with no barrier to revealing the beauty of the Son of Righteousness, Jesus Himself. You become then as strong as the King of all kings, for that is the one that everyone focuses on. You become as famous as the famous one, for that is the one everyone focuses on. You become as glorious as the Lord of glory, for His light is shining through you. All because you lose yourself in Him, that you might find yourself in Him. And like John the Baptist, even in the wilderness, you're a voice crying out, prepare the way for the Lord. This is the one. You're saying, I'm nothing special, actually, but let me tell you about someone who is. And it's so freeing. No longer are you defined by your DNA, your genetics. No longer are you merely what other people think about you. No longer are you living life going through the motions without purpose, without clarity as to who you are. You have a mission. You have an identity. Your mission statement, your purpose statement is this. I exist to point people to the greatest person in the world, to show people the greatest story in the world, to explain the greatest life in the world, to lead people to be a part of the greatest movement, not only in this world, but that will last forever. I exist to point people to Jesus and that is not meaning that my life doesn't mean so much. It is now full. It is now abundant. I'm losing myself that I might gain. He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain, that which he cannot lose. And the illustration the Bible uses for this identity and purpose is right here in the text in front of us, John the Baptist. 
Baptism, dying to self, rising to new life. John the Baptist wearing clothes that are nothing very special in the desert that's not the center of religious power, pointing people to someone else. Martin Luther King put it like this. If a man is called to be a street sweeper, he should sweep streets even as a Michelangelo painted or Beethoven composed music or Shakespeare wrote poetry. He should sweep streets so well that all the hosts of heaven will pause to say, here lived a great street sweeper who did his job well. Greatness does not consist in the abundance of our possessions or the attainments of success. Greatness, according to the model of John the Baptist, consists in our proximity to Jesus Christ. Who are you? Your identity is one who belongs to God and communicates Jesus. Why are you? You exist to point people to Jesus. Now you have only one other question to answer. Will you live this way? There was a thief in Boston. And it was late at night. He had a gun. He was ready to rob the next passerby on the street. A man uh, came out of his uh, office and started to walk towards his car and um, slowly, head down, didn't notice this person standing in the shadows. And as he was walking along the street, the thief, the robber, uh, jumped out in front of him, pulled out his gun and said, you know, give me your money, give me your wallet. Uh, the uh, man reached inside to his pocket and began to pull out his wallet to do so. But as he, as he did that, um, his clerical collar was revealed. He was a priest. He was wearing a dog collar, a clerical collar. He was a priest. Uh, as he pulled out his wallet, that was shown. So the thief, uh, the robber from Boston, uh, noticed this and said, Oh, oh no, Father, you're a priest. I, I don't rob priests. You, you, can, you can keep going. Well, obviously, the priest was uh, rather grateful, you know, this turn of events and said, well, thank you, my son, and put his wallet back in. Actually, I don't have really any money to give you anyway, but in my pocket, I do have a very good chocolate bar. Could I, could I give you that as a token of gratitude? To which the thief said, oh, no, Father, I've given up chocolate for Lent. And isn't that what we are all a bit like? Thief, Christian. But if this morning you would believe that Christ is the one who offers you life, not money, not success, not fame, Christ, you enter into fullness of life. Let us pray. Well, thank you for the ministry of John the Baptist. Thank you for his humility. Thank you that he did not attempt to draw people to himself, but point people to 
to Jesus, to you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we might learn from the example of John the Baptist to not be um, fixated on how many followers we have, but on how many followers you have. To not draw attention to ourselves, but to point people's attention to you. We pray, Lord, that we might learn that uh, that way of living is actually life to the full. Help us to carry that lesson into our consideration of where we spend our time, where we um, offer our services, uh, what we do with our money, what career choices we make, how much time we spend with our family, and what is going on in our mind deep down when we think of who we are and what we are meant to do. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit you would shore up within us that our identity is yours and our purpose is yours as well. For we ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.